Good morning, and welcome to Overeaters Anonymous, a Vision for You Big Book Study. My name is Kathy Kay, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. Today is November 5th, 2015, and we are reading from the Big Book of Alcoholics Anonymous. And we are on page 3, the last paragraph. Today's readers are Bella G. on the 12 Steps, ACT on the 12 Traditions, and reading the text are Rebecca F., Janice M., and Deb W. The reference number for yesterday, November 4, 2015, is 8171. OA Preamble. Overeaters Anonymous is a fellowship of individuals who through shared experience Experience, strength, and hope are recovering from compulsive overeating. We welcome everyone who wants to stop eating compulsively. There are no dues or fees for members. We are self-supporting through our own contributions, neither soliciting nor accepting outside donations. OA is not affiliated with any public or private organization, political movement, ideology, or religious doctrine. We take no position on outside issues. Our primary purpose is to abstain from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors and to carry the message of recovery through the 12 steps of OA to those who still suffer. Our sole purpose, OA's fifth tradition states, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry the message to the compulsive overeater who still suffers. At a Vision for You Big Book study, our message is that people who suffer from compulsive eating can recover through abstinence and the practice of the 12 steps and 12 traditions of Overeaters Anonymous. I will now ask Bella G. to read the 12 steps. Good morning. My name is Bella G, and I'm a thankful recovered compulsive overeater. The 12 steps, the 12 steps of OA. One, we admitted we were powerless over food that our lives had become unmanageable. Two, came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity. Three, made the decision to turn our will and our life over to the care of God as we understood Him. Four, made a searching, a fearless moral inventory of ourselves. Five, admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Six, were entirely ready to have God remove all these defects of character. Seven, humbly asked him to remove our shortcomings. Eight, made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Nine, made direct amends to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. Ten, continue to take personal inventory and when we were wrong, promptly admitted it. Eleven, sought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and the power to carry that out. Twelve, having had a spiritual awakening as the result of these steps, we try to carry this message to alcohol, to al- 
overeaters and to practice these principles in all our affairs. Thank you for letting me do service, and I pass. Thank you, Bella G. I will now ask Stacy T. to read the 12 traditions. Good morning. This is Stacy T., recovering compulsive overeater, calling from Cleveland, Ohio. Tradition 1, our common welfare should come first. Personal recovery depends upon OA unity. Tradition 2, for our group purpose, there is but one ultimate authority, a loving God as he may express himself in our group conscience. Our leaders are but trusted servants. They do not govern. Tradition 3, the only requirement for OA membership is the desire to stop eating. Tradition 4, each group should be autonomous, except in matters affecting other groups or OA as a whole. Tradition 5, each group has but one primary purpose, to carry its message to the compulsive eater who still suffers. Six, an OA group ought never endorse, finance, or lend the OA name to any related facility or outside enterprise, lest problems of money, property, and prestige divert us from our primary purpose. Seven, every OA group ought to be fully self-supporting, declining outside contributions. Eight, OA as such should remain forever non-professional, but our service centers may employ special workers. Nine, OA as such ought never be organized, but we may create service boards or committees directly responsible to those they serve. Tradition 10, of reason anonymous, has no opinion on outside issues, hence the OA name ought never be drawn into public controversy. Tradition 11, our public relations policy is based on attraction rather than promotion. We note we need always maintain personal anonymity at the level of press, radio, and films, Tradition 12, anonymity is a spiritual foundation of all of our traditions, ever reminding us to place principles before personalities are bad. Thank you, Tracy. How our meeting works. Our meeting focuses on the directions for recovery described in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. We read a paragraph or two from the literature, then stop and share on what was read. Anyone can share, but we ask that you keep your sharing to the topic and literature we are discussing and that you keep your share to approximately three minutes. Singleness of purpose reminds us to identify as compulsive overeaters only. Our abstinence requirement for moderators is one year and for readers is six months. There is no abstinent requirement for sharing on topic. This meeting does request that your sharing be directly linked to what was read. We are sharing what the directions in the big book mean to us. To share, press star 1 to unmute. When you are done sharing, let us know by saying pass, then press star 1 to mute your phone. In order to have a quiet meeting, everyone's phone except the speakers should be muted. Today we resume our study of the big book on page 3, the very last paragraph, which begins in 1929, I contracted golf fever. And I will ask Rebecca F. to get us started. Good morning, everyone. In 1929, I contracted golf fever. We went at once to the country, my wife to applaud, while I started out to overtake Walter Hagen. Liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. 
it was fun to caram around or caram around the exclusive course which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. I acquired the impeccable coat of tan one sees upon the well-to-do. The local banker watched me whirl fat checks in and out of his till with amused skepticism. I'm Rebecca F. from Connecticut, and I'm a compulsive overeater. And um, I didn't know who Walter Hagen was when I read about this. Uh, the first time, maybe even a few times. So I finally looked him up, and from 1914 to 1929, he won numerous golf championships. He was the first sportsman to earn a million dollars, and he brought golf to a new level. He made a fashion statement, and he was an exhibitionist, according to my research. So um, this guy was larger than life. He was the third behind Tiger Woods and Jack Nicholas so far in terms of his uh, golfing um, ability and wins. So um, Bill is comparing himself basically to Tiger Woods, you know, and uh, he's caught up in um, an activity that he was very um, awed by as a child when he was, um, I think he might have been like a caddy or something. Uh, so anyway, oh, I was going to set my timer and I didn't, so Kathy, you could let me know. Um, so anyway, I have a little note here that says, what permitted eating under the sentence, golf permitted drinking? And... I know that for me, um, entertaining permitted eating. And I remember even as a child, we always had to have pastry in the house in case somebody stopped by. You had to have something to serve. And I carried that out into my adulthood, and I did a lot of baking and um, always had something supposedly for someone else. (laughs) But it was really an excuse. Uh, to eat, just like golfing was a great excuse for Bill to drink and uh, to socialize, considering he really was losing all his friends. This was a way of having friends, and probably for me, uh, having great yummy food around was a way to lure people into being my friend, for all I know. Um, so um, I also have a note that Bill was dying on the inside while he appeared to be doing well on the outside, and I could say that was true for myself as well, and that I did have a lot of arrogance just like Bill. And it's taken me working in this program to even discover the concept of humility and uh, setting aside everything I think I know. And I'll pass with that. Thank you. Thank you, Rebecca F. Who would like to share on this paragraph? This is Larry. Lindsay, you have to. AJM. One second, Larry K. Lindsay. Um, Rakesha C. from California. Okay, I heard AJM and Rakesha. Who didn't I get? Melissa C. Melissa C. Okay. 
Okay, I have Larry K. Lindsay. I don't have your last initial. A A J M Rakesit and Melissa C. Let's start with those. Go ahead, Larry. Hi, Kathy. Good morning. Uh, Larry K. Uh, Recovered Compulsive Reader from Chicago. Um, so I, I love how Rebecca unpacked that. Um, you know, so again, Walter Hagen, like she said, he was he was known for his dashing and assertive character. You know, he was known for wearing real uh, stylish clothes when playing in ter- uh, tournaments. And I can see why Bill, you know, remembers him and, and why at the time Bill's disease progressed, Bill Hagen's, uh, well, excuse me, Walter Hagen's style had a special appeal to him. You know, my heroes were just like that. <laughs> I always looked upon certain movie stars who seemed to, to garner the attention and admiration of the world as having that, spe- you know, that special something I wanted they were real, usually, you know, fit and physically attractive. They were rich. And everyone seemed to gravitate towards them, you know, fawning all over them. So like Bill, my disease was not just about a substance. You know, there was a deeper longing to be someone special, not merely one grain of sand among the billions, you know. Um, and like Bill, until I was awakened spiritually as a result of these simple principles, my whole life was really defined by the insatiable need to be admired by others. And I, I, I tried desperately to hide those things that I, that I was ashamed of, while my whole life, every action I took was intended to show you how superior, superior I was. And there was, a, there was a hole in my soul so deep, you know, that, that no amount of praise or pizza that you know, would ever be enough to fill it. And this program, these steps have right-sized me. You know, I'm no longer supersized. You know, I'm no longer better than my fellows. I've learned that any talents, abilities that we possess are God-given, and they're to be used for the benefit of others. And the moment they're misused, as I had for years, for selfish aims, those very same abilities endowed by our Creator will not, you know, be properly aligned with God's will for me. So just, you know, just watch what happens. You know, Bill saw it. Maybe you did too. I certainly saw it. See, now I know since I didn't endow myself with this body and whatever abilities I have, that they're not mine. They belong to my higher power. And the only way I can glorify my higher power in body and spirit is when I'm using these in alignment with my creator's will for me. My job is not to chase the likes you know, of Walter Hagen for my personal gain and glory. It's to understand God's will and consistently take action to carry that out. You know, um, and when we learn to do that through these action steps, just watch what your creator can accomplish in and through you. And I'll wrap up by saying, you know, 500 plus people in Virginia Beach. Well, congratulations, God. You know, maybe God's vision is bigger than ours. Maybe maybe 500,000 might be the right number or 5 million. His vision is always bigger than ours. With that, I'll pass. Thanks. Thank you, Larry Kay. And Lindsay, please go ahead and maybe you could tell me your last initial, too. Are you there, Lindsay? Press star. Uh, I, I apologize. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Yes. It's Lindsay B. from New Hampshire. And um very grateful today um, to call myself recovered. And um, this paragraph, um, I've thought about so many times how I identify with this and I, I don't very often I don't know if I've really ever shared um about this and this morning it just hit me on a there was a whole new level 
of understanding and um and that's been happening so much just in the last couple of weeks and being at Virginia Beach, just so many things just suddenly, you know, when Lindsay was willing to actually take that uh, last part, 2% of step one, and so that now it is 100%. And this particular passage, when I was, um, I grew up uh, believing that um, I could never possibly be enough, but maybe, maybe if I had a tan. Now, when you grow up in England, I was very pasty, right, no sun, um, and I was desperate to get a scent tan, went through periods of, you know, letting myself burn, and then to get a tan, be thin, and be extra special. And we'd, nothing ever special seemed to happen in my life. But something unusual happened to my father, um, who had always done the same job his whole life, wasn't happy, and... Um, and I, I wanted excitement. I used to be jealous of people that would move, you know, move to another area because I wanted a new house. I wanted different. I wanted to change. And my father was given the opportunity to go live um, for a couple of years in Saudi Arabia. And he ended up working for probably one of the, you know, most richest guys, whatever, in the world. And I wanted to go. I wanted to go, not because I wanted I, I didn't. Well, I didn't want to go to to, to the, this country, I didn't, what I wanted was to be special, I wanted desperately to be special, and he happened to be working for a, a, this guy who owned a fleet of aircraft, and so I got to go for the first time in an airplane, and it was a private jet, and I was met with a limousine, and I had everything going for me, and I remember I have arrived, picked up by the limousine, lived in a, in a, a compound um, in, in Saudi Arabia, surrounded by a big wall, and I couldn't get out. And it was perfect because I knew I'd already known you know, since I was a little kid. You know, I could not have one of anything, you know, if I had sugar in it. And I could not leave this compound alone without a driver. And so thus was another opportunity for me to try and control my food. So I turned to, um, I hated smoking, but I turned to these long cigarettes, they were called more, and I thought I looked so sophisticated sitting there with my long, you know, cigar-like, and I and I do that. And then there were men. I lived in a compound full of expatriates, American pilots. It was my first exposure to, to anybody. And I discovered Halloween for the first time. These little, um, these American children came knocking on my door asking me to put something in there. So, and, and I was very indignant. They would come to my house for candy, I thought they were coming to my house to give me their candy. And um, and then the tan, forgetting the tan, I would sit, you know, 120 degree weather, getting my tan. And I got so, and it would be horrible. I'd sit there so uncomfortable. And then I'd just jump in the pool. I'd get so uncomfortable, I'd jump in the pool. Jump in the pool, and then what i do, i do the same thing again and again. Definition of insanity, I think I heard there. So I lied on my Thank you so much. And so, yes, yes, no amount of tanning would ever do it. In fact, I was just killing myself along with everything else. I passed. Thank you. Thank you very much. AJM. That's star one, AJ? Yes, this is AJM in North Carolina. And um, what jumped out at me as I've been listening to the uh, sharing and the reading over the past three days is in these past three paragraphs the progression of his disease. Um, he says, drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. 
in the paragraph, two paragraphs above, where things are just going great. He's He's got money. He's got applause. Drink was taking an important and exhilarating part in my life. Then in the next paragraph, my drinking assumed more serious proportions. That's what we read yesterday. And then today, liquor caught up with me. And it made me think about the progression of my disease and um, what was my ambition connected with food, my social ambition. His became golf, obviously. My father was a golfer. I grew up knowing who Walter Hagen was. And um, the um, golf was a social thing as well as an athletic thing. So what did I have in my life that attracted me like that? And as a young wife and mother, before food uh, became, became, before food caught up with me, um, it was bridge, and I would have bridge as a card game, and I would have bridge parties. And the most important thing about a bridge party was what was I going to serve, what food would I have. And bridge was not only social, it was a wonderful way for us to try to outdo each other with our uh, with the things that we served. And the food became equally as important as the game. And I studied bridge. I was going to catch up with Walker, Walter Hagen at the bridge table. I was going to be the best bridge player that had ever been. But I think part of the attraction was the food. I could sit there and play cards and eat. Food did catch up with me um, as I was um, a young wife and mother. By my third pregnancy, I was still an absolutely normal weight, but then I began to gain. And I look at the progression of his disease, and I see the um, exhilarating thing about sharing food with other people. I see that I knew when my eating did begin to assume serious proportions, and I remember clearly when food caught up with me. So I'm really, um, I'm, I'm really seeing myself in Bill's story here and that food, uh, the foods that I have identified that create the phenomenon of craving, those foods are not at all any different from what alcohol was for him. Thank you for your service. Thank you for letting me share. And with that, I'll pass. Thank you, AJM. Okay, um, let's see. Rakesh, it's your turn. Press star one. Thank you, Kathy. This is Rakesh Z from California, a recovered compulsive overeater. And what I'm struck by when I read this paragraph is that Bill is crazy. He's just not thinking straight. He's not thinking reasonably and logically. He thought that at the time he was going to overtake the number one professional golf player in the world. That's how his thinking was. That's how grandiose he would think. He was very ambitious and thought so highly of himself. But, you know, there's a limit. There's a there's reasonableness. There's logic. And he didn't have any of that because he couldn't. He was in his disease. His thinking was totally skewed. The big book tells us that after a while, when we're in our disease, we can't tell the truth from the false. We don't know what's real and what's not real. And I really, I, I can really identify with that because um, 
when I was in organization, I would come up with all kinds of harebrained ideas that were totally crazy. They weren't going to work. I would come up with a different way that I was going to lose weight. Every week, a different way. I was going to try this brand new fasting diet, you know, where you fast for five days and then you, you eat or drink and then whatever. You know, that was never going to work for me because I could not fast. I could not, I could not refrain from eating or drinking because if I could, I wouldn't be 100 pounds overweight. And all kinds of ideas like that. I was going to sign up for a new gym. That was going to do it. That was going to motivate me. I was planning on going every single morning before work. I would exercise every single day, and that would motivate me to eat healthy the rest of the day. You know, none of these things ever worked because my thinking was just not clear. It was just not logical or reasonable. And so I can identify with with Bill thinking things that just are not true and that's what I would think things that are not true and it was a disease it it is a disease making me unable to think clearly unable to reason or to see the truth in anything because I was just so crazy so so fogged up I couldn't so thank you for letting me share and I pass thank you Rick and Melissa C please go ahead Hi, good morning. This is Melissa C., a recovered compulsive overeater in New York. And, um, you know, when I read this, um, I too had to look up who Walter Hagen was. Um, and, um, you know, yeah, Bill's thinking is so grandiose. He's thinking of himself, um, you know, certainly not right size. And, and I could relate to that, you know, too. Um, you know, and then I'm thinking about, um, you know, him getting tanner and drunker on the golf course and, you know, should be happy to have his wife alongside just cheering him on, um, you know, having the time of his life. And yet even that um, isn't enough to keep to keep the drinking down, you know. Um, so I, I, I think for myself, no matter what's going on in my life, the food always took front and center. I, I could be having the time of my life, Um you know, getting tan, vacationing, doing great things, traveling, and still the food could overtake um, every moment. And, you know, and so I'm also thinking how, you know, he said, like, uh, golf allowed him, um, you know, drinking that. I'm paraphrasing, but that drinking was, like, an acceptable part of the whole golf social scene. And, um, you know, this to me is more of my excuse-making. Every event, every occasion seemed to lend itself to the food, whether it was a holiday or a birthday or going to someone's house or inviting people over. Um, It didn't matter what it was. It was Friday. It was Monday. You know, every opportunity, every day seemed like another um, reasonable excuse to eat. But um, just like Bill, you know, the reasonable excuse um, opens the door for me to pick up, and then once I pick up, you know, I can't moderate myself. So, you know, he probably he could have, you know, a few drinks on the golf course and think he could end with that, just like I think I can have a piece of birthday cake and end with that. You know, that's impossible. It starts the phenomenon of the craving and of the allergy and, um, you know, and so my goals have to be right-sized. I have to think of myself um, 
how I am in agreement with my fellows, not greater than, not looking for applause and admiration, but just part of my fellows. And thank you. With that, I'll pass. Thank you, Melissa C. Uh, is there anyone else who'd like to share on this paragraph? Renata. This is Bella. Can I share? Sharon H. Kathleen O. Let me stop you. Leah. Um, uh, got Renata G. R. M. G. Nesta R. Nesta R. Rochelle. Rochelle, is that who I heard? Yep. Okay, great. Debbie D. I got Debbie. Okay, let me Thanks. tell you who I have. I have Renata G, Kim G, Leah M, Debbie D, Nessa R, and Rochelle. Is there anyone else? Bella G. Bella. Karen H. Karen H. And is there someone else? Mary Kay. Mary Kay. Okay, we'll stop there. Um, go ahead, Renata G, please, and it will be Kim G next. Thank you, Kathy, for your service. Good morning, family. This is Renata G, Recovered Composed Overeater in New York. I wasn't going to share this morning, but this is calling to me so much. Um, you know, what I see here in Bill's story was my life before working through the steps. You know, it was all about the food, um, you know, the new diet, the new you know, the new thing that would make me look good to the world. You know, it was all about getting applause and recognition of other people, you know, praise of like, oh, my gosh, how, look how you look good and skinny and all of that. And, you know, just like Bill, right, having people to applaud him and showing off a coat of pen and, you know, writing all this fat check, like, you know, I wanted to impress the world and I thought the way to do it was to be skinny. But, you know, after working the 12 steps, you know, I've had a spiritual awakening, a personality change that, you know, showed me how I needed to be a different person, have different actions. And, you know, by working the principles of this program today, I, I, I don't need all that self-centered behavior, you know. I don't want to be dishonest. I don't want to, um, you know, be a people pleaser. I don't want to do things just so people can applaud me. And, you know, by consequence of working the spiritual program, the weight has come off. And it, it doesn't matter, you know. It's not news anymore. It's been a few years now, so, you know, wherever I go, people have seen me, you know, the way I look today, and so it's not news, it's not nobody applauds, and so I needed something that would sustain me in a different way of living, a different way of behaving in the world, because if I stay in that same mindset, nothing ever changed, and uh, I just want to share something here. I have a post-it on this page on my big book. Uh, from last time I picked up the food, and my sponsor had me go back. I was on step four. My sponsor had me go back to step one and do some work, and I was reading Bill's story, and my disease was really talking really loud in my head. Get up. Get up and go to the kitchen and eat. You know it's useless. You know you can't do this. Just get up and go eat right now. 
And I got up and I picked up the phone and I called the Sunday special edition speaker and I talked to her and I haven't picked up the food since then and it's been almost two years. So do not believe the lies of your disease. Um, you know, there's a solution here and it works. Uh, with that, I pass. Thanks. Thank you, Renata G. Um, Kim G., please go ahead. Good morning, Kathy Kay. Good morning, all. My name is Kim G., and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from South Jersey. Golf permitted drinking every day and every night. It was fun to crown the exclusive course, which had inspired such awe in me as a lad. You know, one of the things I would like to point out with Bill's story is the power of a recovered person telling their story, sharing their experience, strength, and hope, because when you're recovered, you have a perspective that you don't have when you're in the food. And unfortunately, I think in many meetings, my experience has been people are sharing experience in the food while they're in the food. So there's not any objectivity. So we're seeing here how Bill is seeing what he did then. I'm sure this is not the description he would have given of this time in his life if he was currently drinking. So that's why I think it's so important. Experience is when we've been through the process and can look back retrospectively. That's the power of recovered people sharing their story. Um, so thinking of that, looking back now as a recovered woman at different events in my life and how I define them. You know, we just had Halloween. I have to tell you, my, my memories of Halloween are not of who had the cool decorated houses and the costumes, but who gave away those full-size candy bars? You know, those were the houses that drew me. You know, look, I don't think it's a coincidence that I wouldn't say Thanksgiving. I would say Turkey Day because the focus was on the food. And when I would get excited that Aunt Marianne was coming to Thanksgiving this year, I wasn't looking to hang out with Aunt Marianne. I was looking to the fact that Aunt Marianne makes the best apple pie and she was coming over that time. You know, when I think of Christmas, I'm much more excited about the cookies that were served versus the presents I got. You know, um, my holidays, in all honesty, were more exciting the day after Halloween, the day after Easter, and the day after Valentine's, because that's when all the candy was half off. That was more exciting to me than the actual holiday. You know, when I look back at weddings in my 20s, I can't tell you who was in the wedding party, but I can sure tell you who had the, the best buffets, who had those chocolate fountains that you could put over fruit, which is the only way that I could tolerate fruit is if you covered it with chocolate. You know, I think of how, asking, a, asking any compulsive overeater directions, you're going to find those directions by restaurants and by fast food joints. It's just where we focus. So that's what look at. Look at where your memories are. Look at how you define holidays, how you define good times. That's what Bill is talking about. The alcohol is still working for him. It's inspiring him. It's exciting. And that's what I saw in the beginning of my progression. Before, at this point, it hasn't become a necessity. It's still a luxury, but I can see that it, the importance is becoming larger and larger and defining my life and the events in my life. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Kim G. And Leah M., please go ahead, and then Debbie D. Go ahead, Leah. Thanks so much, Kathy, for your service. Liquor caught up with, he, with me much faster than I came up behind Walter. I began to be jittery in the morning. You know, to me, this just uh, smacks of the progression of the disease. And, um, you know, I relate to the increase of frequency, the increase of the intensity, and the increase of the duration of my eating. 
you know, my eating started when I was a, a young kid. And there, as I review that career of compulsive overeating, you know, I see it picking up speed, um, just like, you know, we're reading in Bill's story. You know, there was a point in my uh, eating career, you know, you know, high school uh, and into my college years where, you know, I was eating and binging and using greater and greater amounts of volume due to my increased tolerance and capacity to eat. You know, I had been doing a good job at compulsive overeating even as a kid in elementary school. But, um, you know, things were picking up speed. Um, I was no longer able to control consistently or predict the outcomes of my eating, meaning my body was really taking a hit, just like, uh, you know, Bill is experiencing being jittery in the morning. My body was hooked, meaning as soon as I woke up in the morning, uh, my disease needed to be fed because physically I was hooked on certain substances. Physically, my body was accustomed to having a certain level of sugar running through my veins. And so physically, my body was geared up for this addiction. I was experiencing a noticeable decrease in my ability to tolerate or handle my binging, meaning there were consequences if I couldn't eat, physical consequences, let alone the mental obsession that was uh, so, on, you know, so voracious. But, you know, physically, um, my body needed the drug, and there was this preoccupation, just like Bill's experience of pre occupation, I was planning my day around my binging, and I was daydreaming about the times when I was going to be free to binge, and I was structuring my life and my activities to create more opportunities and situations for binging. So my world began increasingly getting smaller, and my life of being an addict of my compulsive overeating was getting greater and greater. And that's what I see in Bill's story here is that same, uh, you know, his addiction, his alcoholism is growing bigger and bigger and bigger. His world, despite his desperate attempts, is becoming smaller and smaller and smaller. And with that, I pass. Thank you. Thank you, Leah M. And Debbie D., go ahead, please. Press star one, Debbie, to unmute. Can you hear me? Now I can, yes. Go ahead, please. Okay, thank you. Uh, I'm Debbie D., Grateful Compulsive Overeater in Washington, D.C. And I have to say, um, when I read the big book, I read it in about a week, and I rushed through it. I've even read Bill W.'s story probably more times than I can count, and I never gave thought to this paragraph and to this person, Walter Hagen. And I think it's just, I'm, I'm in awe right now, almost feeling a miracle as to how deliberate and thoughtful a group of people can be doing big book study. And I'm relatively new. So I, I just have to say that, you know, I'm almost moved to tears to see how a collective mind of all these individual experiences have shed so much light on just a paragraph. Like this is just a paragraph. And uh, I remember reading it, you know, and reading, you know, Walter Hagen's name and not giving any thought to it because I was, was too important to care, you know, who this, what this name is. I never slowed down to really care about the specific details. And so in dissecting this paragraph, 
like just in this moment itself, I'm, I'm feeling grateful and, and uh, really appreciative of the power of this group. And um, the other thing was when I read about, when I read Walter Hagen, I remember thinking like, oh, it's just some buddy of his, or it's just some friend or, you know, oh, he's just trying to compete with somebody else. And, um, and, and when I think about that, my interpretation was, who am I competing with? You know, it's, I didn't think of it as somebody glamorous or, or someone larger than life. I just thought of it as, who do I want to be better? Who do I want to beat? And it was, it was this competitiveness of um, not being good enough until I, I passed the next person. And once I passed the next person, you know, if there was nobody else to pass, for example, in my work, you know, I've worked there the longest other than the president, and there's no way I could pass him, so I resolved not to pass him. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm content with being in the, in the top spot, as, as top as I can be, and then I let everything else slide, and then I, I rest on my laurels, or then I, um, you know, I, I don't try any harder. And, and I, you know, it's just, you know, when I think about competing, there's always going to be somebody bigger or better or lighter and tighter or faster or thinner or richer um, and it's just never enough. And so, you know, when I think about him um, surpassing Walter Hagen, it makes me think, you know, well, not only is he thinking grandiose, but, you know, there's this drive to be the best or to be better. And um, this, is, this is what pushed me into eating was that at some point I decided that I could never beat anybody, that I was never good enough, and that I would just be miserable, but that I would have this constant companion, which is food. And I'm so grateful for this group in just dissecting this one paragraph. Uh, my mind is really blown, you guys. <laughs> uh, and I really appreciate it. And with that, I pass. Thank you, Debbie D. Nessa R., please go ahead. Good morning, friends. Um, this is Nessa R., a recovered compulsive overeater in Toronto, Canada. So here, Bill is pursuing a feeling, a feeling that is so elusive to him and I like Bill was pursuing that feeling and for me it was self-worth you know a self-worth that I didn't have self-worth that I thought would be achieved if I was um, thin and wore beautiful clothes and was very popular and for a while I achieved that not through very healthy means mind you but I achieved that in my late teens and early 20s um, although that quickly changed when I got married and my weight started to climb to um, almost, 200, almost 100 pounds, you know, right from the get-go. But, you know, even when I was thin and popular and, you know, beautiful and well-dressed, you know, I still had no feeling of self-worth at all, you know, because wherever I went, there I was. And, you know, this, this comment about Walter Hagen really makes me chuckle because I had my own um, Walter Hagen moment, you know, in my quest for self-worth and to impress others, which was another means that I thought would get me to love myself and appreciate myself and value myself. Um, I told everyone in my circle who, who would listen that I could run a seven-minute mile. And I don't know if they bought it. I mean, who, who would be that dumb? But I definitely was. I convinced myself um, because it's not very hard to, um, to fool a fool. So I've never run a day in my life. I'm not a runner, never will be a runner. And yet I could run a seven-minute mile just like Bill, who was an occasional golfer, could overtake um, a professional golfer whose profession, whose, whose daily activities were, were golf. 
you know, um, talk about um, talk about self delusion there, um, and I I did that, and I still obtain no self worth. Um, now I know, um, which I learned this in recovery, as a result of putting down the food and working the twelve steps according to the big book, that self worth doesn't come from the outside. Self worth comes from doing uh, worthy things, you know, serving God, helping others, uh, focus being focused on others and not my own um, selfish, materialistic pursuits. I, I didn't know that then. And for sure when I came into the rooms, that was not my goal. My goal was to find a key to become permanently thin. Um, you know, and in doing so, I discovered recovery and I discovered the true key to self-worth, meaning um, trusting God, cleaning house, helping others. And I pass. Thank you, Nessa R. And Michelle, please go ahead. Did you We're say not... Bella G? No, I said Rochelle. You'll be next, Bella G. Uh, good morning. This is Rochelle M. in Maryland. Uh, can you hear me okay, Kathy? Yes, I can. Thank okay. you, Michelle. Rochelle. You're welcome. I, I want to say before I, I share, start my share, what a pleasure it was to meet you. I've heard your voice on the phone. And... Uh, it was so nice to meet you in person and to meet so many other, uh, I would say, co-sufferers, but I have to say co-recoverers. <laughs> uh, Thank you. You're welcome in uh, in Virginia Beach. And what a powerful room it was with close to, I think it was close to 500 people of the same mindset. is really quite amazing. I thought the waves on the ocean were strong. This was strong. But relative to my share for today, um, I want to backtrack a little bit to... Um, to our friend Bill W., when he had this idea, he had a really good idea. He was going to check out the markets. No one was else was doing that. This is in the 1930s, I assume, and uh, and he was going to see what was going on in those in those factories and places that he visited. Well, in those days, America was a hub of economic activity, and and uh, and there really were things made in America, and he went out to check them out, and that was a really good idea because nobody else was doing that. Now it's true. He took a big chance because, after all, who's going to get on a motorcycle with their wife and, and, and their package of belongings and and go out traveling? Okay, that that took guts, but he was young. And um, one of the things that we're taught, at least I was here in America, is that when you're young, you take some chances, and uh, you're young enough to recover from it if uh, if you fail. So he was off and running, you know. But uh, grandiose, perhaps, but it also was a good idea. And it's so interesting how this is such a subtle foe, this ego business, because, yeah, it was a good idea, but where did it lead him? It was like the beginning of, uh, you know, like the snake in the Garden of Eden said, here, take a bite, you know. It's not going to hurt you. You're not going to die from it. You know, so look where he winds up. He winds up uh, getting drunk and and uh, dissolving whatever personal values he was brought up with. So um, I identify with this, and I'm just so grateful to be recovered today. Pass. Thank you, uh, Rochelle um, and Bella G. It's your turn. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. My name is Bella G, and I'm a thankful recovered compulsive overeater. Thank you, Katie, for doing <clears throat> this service, and thank you very much, everybody on the line. 
first I have to apologize that I talked before, not in my turn. Um, I acquired the impeccable quote of ten one sees upon the world to do. Well, this was me. I didn't know who I am, and I didn't even want to know who I am. I wanted, I wanted to run away from myself because I believed that I am a over-either person, and that's it. I don't have a personality. I don't have nothing. I am only overweight, and it means that I am stupid. It means that I, I, I don't have a willpower. It means that I, I, I am not smart. And I didn't want to be like this. So I didn't want to picture my future as this because I am stupid. I don't have a willpower. I, I, I don't, I'm not worth it. So how will, how will be my future? So I wanted to be a skinny person and that's it. I did believe that a person that looks good this is it. He is a good person. He is rich. He is smart. He, he is happy. He has all the time uh, friends around him. And this was my will. Yes, this was my dream. I wanted to be a skinny person because then I will have a wonderful, wonderful future. I will be so happy. And now I know that I wanted to be a people pleaser. And I wanted to be a skinny person. Thank you, God. Thank you, God, that I am not there anymore. Today, today I learned to accept myself because today I know that I am accepted by God. God accepts me the way I am. Yes, and I am not perfect. And for me, you know, it's part of my of it's part of my life that I am a compulsive overeater, and I have some other things, some other qualities. And today I don't want to run away from myself. Today, thank you, God, I learned to live the present, to live the present in freedom. Thank you for letting me share, and I pass. Thank you, Bella G. And Sharon H., please go ahead. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Kathy. This is Sharon H., recovered compulsive overeater in Colorado. Thank you, God. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, when I read this paragraph, uh, liquor caught up with me much faster than I came up behind Walter Hagen. I began to be jittery in the morning, and golf permitted even drinking day and every night. Um, this just reminds me of what my life was like back in the early 70s before I even came into any 12-step program. And what I can see today that I didn't see then at all was that my inner battle, this mental inner battle that went on with me constantly, but my focus was totally to make the outside look good no matter what was going on inside of me. So as a result of that, I didn't see 
what I needed to see, that I had a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body, that only God, only God, and my willingness to uh, surrender and choose to be under his direction, rather than trying to make this battle that went on in me, you know, I mean, that was a period of my life when I looked the best, and I was in a I lived on the 17th hole of a golf course and <clears throat> tried to outdo my husband who played golf for years, and I was just learning. But the bottom line was I had this empty hole in my soul, and I didn't even know it. And I would try to fill it up. I can remember driving <clears throat> after the kids went off to school and my husband went off to work, and I would go get a whole box of a candy, one of my favorites, and I would eat the whole thing and drive back and forth in my binge-mobile until it was all gone. And um, so, you know, it's, I'm just so grateful today that when we read page 164, uh, God has been faithful enough to me to let me reach that point where today I believe in the core of my being. I know only a little, and I entrust myself to God because that's my only hope. I wouldn't even be on this line today sharing if that wasn't the case. So thank you, and I pass. Thank you, Sharon H. Um, Mary Kay, you'll be our last share, and we have two minutes. Thank you. Good morning, everyone. This is Mary Kay, recovering compulsive overeater, a grateful recovering compulsive overeater from upstate New York. Um, thank you for everyone sharing on the lines this morning. Um, I've heard some wonderful, wonderful shares on this paragraph. The, the I actually am trying not to laugh at myself too much because I think there is there is um it's good to be able to laugh at ourselves as well and and I like the perspective that that Bill wrote this um from a recovered perspective, and he was able to look back and the the grandiose part of this paragraph imagine this i mean folks I've only been in these rooms for four months. And I didn't know anything about the 12-step programs, and I am in my, I'm 61 years old. And when we talked about this paragraph and I heard some of the other shares, I suddenly had this vision of myself. This is a true story about 20 years ago. I mean, I've lived more than three decades of my life in the 300s. And I was so full of myself and so confident, and I didn't even see myself for what it was, the I love community theater, and I was all, and I have, I can sing a little bit, and I've always gone out for parts and stuff. But this time they were doing Forty Second Street, and I was going to dance too. Now I've never taken a dance lesson in my life. I went out and I bought tap dance shoes, and I went to the, and I took two lessons, and then I went to the auditions, actually thinking that I might be good enough to get a spot in the show uh, as a dancer. And, of course, the stairs were really steep and high to get up to the dance studio. And I got up there, and there's this room full of mirrors. I stayed once, and I ran out of the room. What was I thinking? I was delusional. I was like, thinking was crazy. And I know that now. And, and God let me do other things in that show. I sang. I hum- humbled myself, and I sang. And But anyway, thank you, God, for these rooms. Thank you for recovery. Thank you for the shares. And with that, I pass. Uh, thank you very much, Mary Kay. And now it's time for us to close. Um, thanks to everyone who has shared.
until the end. 